First, Thess First Thess gosh, Thessalonians <laughs> 1, 1 to 10. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the, church, to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you, mentioning you in our prayers. We continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord in spite of severe suffering. You welcomed the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit, and so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Then 3, 6 to 13. But Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. He has told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us, just as we also long to see you. Therefore, brothers, in all our distress and persecution, we are encouraged about you because of your faith. For now we really live, since you are standing firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. Amen. Thank you, Randy and Martha. You know, Randy and Martha have been um, pillars of this church for nearly 30 years. So I am very thankful for them. We we'll look forward to honoring them in February at our 30th anniversary. <clears throat> I'm not sure where the saying came from, but it goes something like this. When the gospel went to the Greeks, it became a philosophy. When the gospel went to the Romans, it became an institution. When the gospel went to the Europeans, it became scholasticized. And when the gospel came to the Americans, it became a business. So there is uh, a truth in that, in that we have a knack for strategy and for structure and for pulling levers that allow things to go well. I think it's a part of the American spirit. And a lot of that, I think, can be harnessed for good in the church. But when we rely on those types of devices at the expense of the primary work in the life of the church, I think we run a great danger. And that's what we're going to think about today. Really, the primary work is prayer in the life of the church. It reminds me of the, this line from Oswald Chambers that uh, John Petticord gave me this week, the author of the devotional, My Utmost for His Highest. At the top of your notes, he says this, prayer does not fit us for the greater work. Prayer is the greater work. 
So what we often do, again, in our minds is say, here's the church, let's think about the strategies and the structures and what kinds of things we need to pull, put in place. And if we do these, then things are gonna go well and say that's uh, one way of doing things. And then we say, God, if you're on board, we need your help. As opposed to, I think the real posture is, God, we desperately need your help. And without you, uh, we would not be in good shape at all. God, we're completely dependent upon you. In other words, prayer, prayer does not supplement the good ideas of fallen men, but rather God has given us the gift of prayer that we might discern his will and gather his wisdom as we move forward as a church. And so we'll look today at this Thessalonian church that passed insurmountable odds, I think, from a human standpoint. Paul, by every estimation, not a great speaker, by his own admission, not a great speaker, from what we can gather, not a particularly good-looking guy. Uh, everything that you would say, you know, this church has a chance to, to do well, we probably would have said, uh, I don't think so. And yet, God had done a great work, so much so that in less of a month of ministry, that they really got it, they were converted, and chapter 1 and verse 7, they had become a model to their whole region. They were an example to all the Greek churches, both to the north in Macedonia and to the south in Achaia, that uh, this church really, uh, God did a work among them. And when we see really what was behind this, was it Paul's good strategy? No doubt he was strategic. We read in Acts 17, he had a deliberate method. He went to the synagogues. He reasoned from the scriptures. Paul had a method. I'm sure there's a, a, a bit of a structure here. He had to appoint people that actually ran things. Those are good. But really, what Paul gives credit to, what he links is the well-being of this church with a prayerful dependency on God. That prayer is really integral to the life of the church. Now, why do I bring this up? Not just, of course, because we go through the scriptures um, the way we do things here, as we always work through what the Bible says, never do things topically, and we're working through this letter, so it's in the letter. But I think for us now, our church is in a very interesting place. On the one hand, I, you know, say, well, we have two full services on any given Sunday. They're, you know, somewhere between 75 and 85 percent full of the chairs here, which is about, you know, where you say every seat full would uh, be maximum capacity. So we're kind of in a sweet spot there. Church is healthy. Uh, children's ministry is strong. And there's a, you know, side. Say, well, may, we just kick it into neutral here and uh, keep gathering on Sundays and doing our thing. On the other hand, I'm thinking we've got a young and energetic staff. God has gifted us with an incredibly talented church family that we have certain Sundays, depending on who's here, where the children's wing is very densely packed, shall we say. The bathroom situation, I mean, this church, I don't know, built between, you know, I don't know, 800 and 1,000 people were kind of there. And it's, a, in a way, I, I was like, is it, is it mourning at Providence, to use my inner Reagan? If you say, I always try to work in Reagan when I can. Is there a, it's a mourning at Providence. We need to put our foot on the gas. But then you say, well, what should we do? The real question is, what kind of church does God want us to become? What are we supposed to do? Should we add on to our building? Given the state of the economy, the price of goods, is that the right thing to do? Do we add a service? Say, when you add services, then you say you have all of a sudden a first service and a third service, and those people don't often know each other. Does that fit in a, the model of the New Testament? Do we, do we plant a church, a very good thing to do? If so, where? And who's our church planter? 
These are major questions facing our church. And friends, it shouldn't be down to me or anybody else saying, well, let's just pull the right levers here and then say, God, you're going to bless it. The only thing I know what to do is to ask for God's help through the prayers of the church family because that is the primary work of the church. It does not fit us for the greater work, say a building project or a church plant, but prayer is our work. And just as Paul did with these Thessalonians, that we should learn about the central importance of prayer in the life of Providence Church. So just a simple outline today. What does Paul pray for? Again, you could look at any letter, but in Thessalonians, what does he pray for? Who does Paul pray with? And when does Paul pray? So firstly, what does Paul pray for? What's the nature of his prayer? You'll notice in chapter 1, really from verse 2, that the rest of the chapter, it's one big sentence in the original. It's couched as a prayer. We give thanks to God always for you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, that he's got prayer on the mind. And the first thing we should see is that he prays to God who has revealed himself as Father. Verse 3, remembering before our God and Father. People talk about prayer a lot, actually, and I, I sometimes get the impression they're talking about, you know, calling out to an impersonal force or that there's a, a genie in a lamp and you just say, oh, I'm in a tough spot. Maybe if I say this right thing, then I'm going to procure a little bit of favor here. May there be no doubt about it that God has revealed himself as a loving and attentive father. For those of us who've had good fathers, I pray that many of you have had a good dad. You say, oh, this analogy works really well because my dad was there for me. He guided me. He was available. And God is, is just uh, the perfect example even uh, you know, of, a, of a good earthly dad is imperfect. God's a perfect example of a father. For others of us, you see this, God is father, and a flood of emotion comes into the mind because <laughs> you're thinking, if God's anything like my father, no thanks. And I hope that we can see today that deep down when we say whatever we would want in a good dad, a dad who's there driving us forward, who's there available, steering us, giving us wisdom, say that's how God has revealed himself to those who are his. He's a loving father and we can call on him. Come to God as a loving father. That's what Paul does. We give thanks always, remembering you before our God and our father, the most famous prayer in the Bible, right? The our father, come to God as Abba a caring dad. That's how we posture ourselves, not to an impersonal force, but to a God who listens, who's like a good dad. Also in this prayer, like the other ones in the letter, you notice that gratitude plays a strong part in Paul's prayers. We give thanks, chapter 1 and verse 2, or how about chapter 2 and verse 13, and we also thank God. Chapter 3, what we read in verse 9, for what thanksgiving can we return to God? There's this sense in almost all of Paul's prayers of a deep sense of gratitude for what God has done. It's not, again, as he looks out at the church at the Thessalonians, it's not that, you know, Paul's patting himself on the back. We had just the right strategy. We came out with just the right thing. It was cutting edge and the life, you know, and then because it was cutting edge, we got a lot of people in the church. It's not that. He really says, God, you, you have done only what you could do in the life of our church, and for that, we give thanks. You know, gratitude, lots can be said about gratitude. Go a couple directions here. One is just how often when we're feeling depressed or cynical about things, you say, what's the antidote for that kind of thing? 
they say a lot of times it's a posture of gratitude. See, because I start playing the comparison game, and by the way, we've got a really good, the, the greatest device we have for the comparison, the greatest the world's ever seen is social media, where we go on there and we start to look, say, oh, that person's having a better time than I am, they've got to go to a more exotic place, and boy, they look really happy, boy, that marriage looks really happy, and we start playing the comparison game, we start to feel entitled, my life's not very good, feel a bit depressed. How do you get out of that spiral? God, you've been so kind to me, a sinner, and I give thanks to you for doing a work in my life. Thank you, God, for giving me the things that I have. Thank you, God, for giving me a church family with people who can support one another and love one another and abound in these Christian virtues. Thank you, God. You see how gratitude can pull us out of the spiral of cynicism and depression. You know, it was Dante Gabriel Rossetti who said this. I've thought a lot about this line over the years. Rossetti said this. He says, the worst moment for the atheist is when he's truly thankful and has nobody to thank. You think about that? You ever, like, say your life is spared? You ever had that? You say, wow, I could have, you know, that, that was just a narrow miss there. And, like, the, you know, thank God. Because your, your, your reaction, immediate reaction is, thank, you know, thankfulness. Or the best in, in my life where I, I'm replaying it in my mind. My son Graham's here, the service. I didn't know he's seven. But I remember now dads are allowed in the room, right? That little baby came out. I'm like, wow, thanks. Wow, I wanted to thank somebody. I was thankful to Mallory. That was quite an effort there, but I was, it, was, it was cosmic insignificance. Cosmic insignificance. That's it. Thank you. You see, if you're a materialist, you're, you're, I think with this sense of inner gratitude, you're a little bit at war with yourself. That's why I think gratitude in certain instances can function as an apologetic, as I said, because there are moments where we want to give thanks. The only appropriate person we could possibly be thanking would be God for his kindness, and if you're a materialist, then you're suffering from the boomerang effect, which you're, you're fighting against the impulses that you have. So gratitude dispels many negative outcomes. I think there's elements of that that are ingrained in the big moments of life where we thank God because what it really does is it, it positions who God is and who I am. That I owe my existence, I owe the good things in this life not to my own strategies, but to a good and kind God who has dealt with me a sinner very graciously. Behind all this dependency, really, this is about dependency. We thank God for what he has done in this little church in Thessalonica. We thank God. It's about dependency versus what I could say, self-sufficiency. You think, what if we never prayed as a church? We'll do it ourselves, God. Thank you very much. We've got it all figured out. Uh, we'll decide what to do and go from there. Say prayer, you say, what's it about? Prayer is, again, the church understanding who we are as God's creatures in need of his help. God, this is about you and not about us. So what does Paul pray for? He prays to God, our Father, a loving and attentive Father, giving thanks for the work he's done, not for human convention. And in so doing, it's inevitable here that he has a direct link between the good things in the church and the prayerfulness of the saints. That the flourishing of the church is linked to the prayers of those who are in it. So what else does Paul pray for? You'll know also elements in chapter 1. I think this. He prays that God's word is honored in the midst of the assembly, right? For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, 
but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Chapter 2, and we thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. So he's praying, I think, here for these saints to recognize God's word for what it is. Is it just words on a page? Is it just, you know, an old dusty book, a GQ? That's one you don't need anymore. Toss it aside. Or is it the very lifeblood for our flourishing for our lives? That that's a work of God. Elsewhere in, say, Ephesians, he uses a different word for the same concept. He prays for revelation or for enlightenment. God, prove to your people once again that your word is not of men, but it is of your origin. That it is a living and active, active document that cuts us and pierces us and shapes us and gives us hope. It corrects us. It is our true hope. That's what we pray for as a church, for open eyes that the church would be more and more committed to the word of God, that the non-believers in our life, God, can you open their eyes? Because I can't open their eyes. Only by your work can you open their eyes. How often what I just said, you know, that, that metaphor, blindness and sight, you notice how often that's used in matters of conversion? Um, maybe the most famous hymn, Newton, right? I was blind, but now I see all the miracles in scripture, you know, if we read the miracles and say, that's pretty cool. I mean, Jesus, that was, in, that was impressive. He gave the blind guy sight. It's an illustration of the sight that every Christian has received. I was blind. I was doing my own thing. I was living for my own pleasure. I, I was, you know, out plowing through life aimlessly, and God opened my eyes in his kindness by doing a work in my heart. He gave me sight. So that's what we pray for as a church, that God's word is honored, that both the Christian and the non-Christian receive the enlightenment, that is, the, what the word really is, that it's not a word of men, but it's a word of God, that he would do that for our church. You know, practically, here's, you know, just an illustration as I'm thinking through this. We have that picture of those two boys, okay. This is in the early 1950s. Boy on the left's called Christopher, boy on the right's called Peter, their brothers just a few years apart. Uh, they were raised loosely in the church, nominal Christian upbringing, but both in young adulthood, partly because of Christopher's influence, leads Peter into a kind of materialistic socialism uh, as uh, young adults. As their lives would go on, that many of them, or both of them, at some point would hear uh, the gospel preached, that they'd be back in the life of the church. The boy on the left, uh, from every indication, his heart was hardened. He became more entrenched in his atheism. So their last name of these boys is Hitchens. You might know the name Christopher Hitchens, one of the leading atheists, uh, one of the great, you know, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, as they called themselves. A man who devoted his life, wrote for Vanity Fair, you could say, Christopher Hitchens devoted his life for uh, discrediting belief in Jesus. People know Christopher Hitchens, a very witty, kind of likable guy. They know his name. What they don't know is his brother Peter. That as Peter would grow up in that materialism and that atheism, that as he would hear the good news of Jesus, that God did a work in his life. And he surrendered to Jesus and has written a number of books. In fact, a number of books against his brother's writings. And I just asked myself, maybe somebody was praying for Peter. God opened his eyes. How is it? Two boys playing in the sand. One entrenched in his atheism, the other one, a devoted follower of Jesus. This is what the church ought to be praying. God, open our eyes so that we might see the word for what it is that you would draw us to yourself. What else does Paul pray for? Well, I think he prays for what we would call 
sanctification. Well, I know he prays for sanctification at the end of the letter, uh, chapter 5 and verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. That's a way of saying, God, may we pray for this little church in Thessalonica, may we pray for this little church in Avon, that they would be really committed to the Lord Jesus and that they would grow in their faith. That the fruit of the gospel would be more and more evident among them. Which ones am I talking about? Well, namely here, faith, hope, and love. The big Christian triad, verse 3, faith, hope, and love, that we would be abounding in those, growing in those. Say, how many in a church, you know, you gave your life to the Lord, praise God, many, many decades ago, and your faith is a bit stale. You say, well, what do I do now? You know, where do I go from here? May our journey always be one of great excitement. That God goes to work. Once we're converted, he goes to work on us. That he wants the life of Christ to be more and more evident in our midst. And how powerful that can be in today's age. Somebody comes in, well, there's a people that really seems to love each other. They kind of have this hopefulness that's not anchored to circumstances. It seems to be deeper. And my goodness, they really are quite committed to Jesus and it's abounding among them. That's a work of God, sanctifying his people, growing us deeper so that at his coming, all of us might be mature before him. That's the life of the church, that we would be sanctified, that we would be increasingly set apart from sin and more and more obedient to Jesus. Paul prays for increased Christ-like fruit, that the church would mature. That is our prayer as well. How about five in chapter 5, verse 25, another point in our letter where he mentions prayer. little line at the end. So at the um, epilogue here, you see chapter 5 and verse 25, just four words. Brothers, pray for us. That there is a reciprocity here. He's praying for this church. God, may your word be honored. Continue to open their eyes. Show your word for what it is. Do a sanctifying work among them. May they mature in the faith, so on. And in return, these Christians in first century Greece are praying back for Paul as he does the work of the ministry. So I ask us, are we praying for those beyond our walls? God's been kind to give us many missions partners. Is this something that we do? Are we praying for uh, our missionaries in Central Asia, for those in Africa, the surgeons with Pan-African Academy of Christian Surgeons, or with SMM, Sustainable Medical Missions, the people we've partnered with in Pakistan say this is a good prayer for a church to say God we pray for those doing your good work that your kingdom may advance that's integral to how healthy we'll be as a church so again what does Paul pray for he prays towards God with a posture of gratitude which is really about dependence we're not self-sufficient it's about God and not about us he prays that God's word is honored that it's seen for what it is that becomes more and more evident to the believers and even our non-believing friends God says oh opens their eyes says oh I do need Jesus that's who I need he prays that we would mature in our faith and he prays that the ministry would continue to abound across that region and even beyond now two practical uh, comments or two further thoughts and then we'll, we'll move forward a lot of times, not in Thessalonians, but in other Pauline letters, he's bound. It's one of the most confounding things if you take it on the human plane. How is it the greatest traveling evangelist the world's ever seen? Paul of Tarsus. If there's one guy who really had it, he's going in and he's planting the churches. Greatest guy ever to do that. Really good. He spends a lot of time in prison. So what we just say, God, you don't know what you're doing. You got your key evangelist and you've got him two years rotting away in Caesarea or Rome or wherever it was. 
But what a lesson that Paul teaches us. A prayer is a work of ministry that's never bound. You're here today. Culture says, you're out to pasture. You're too old. You're out at work. Or maybe you say, I'm physically limited, or I don't have speaking gifts. How do I? You possess the most important, important tool for kingdom advance in your prayers for the faithful. That's the most potent gospel weapon to pray for the church. How can you serve? We all can pray for our church. That is not bound. Some further thoughts on this matter. One historical, one present. But uh, maybe the greatest Christian between Paul and Martin Luther, the greatest Christian thinker, you know, St. Augustine. Now, my parents didn't give me a biblical name, but Austin is derived from Augustine, so I'll take it. So, uh, <laughs> Augustine of Hippo. Um, you know, Augustine wasn't always a Christian. He was a Manichaean, hence his famous book, The Confessions. He's confessing to how he did life on his own terms. But what a lot of people don't know is behind Augustine's conversion was his mom, Monica. And I always love telling this, teach undergraduate church history, Monica prayed for Augustine day after day, year after year. God, please rescue my son. Please help him to see Jesus, not as something invented by men, but as your only begotten son who came to rescue sinners. Open his eyes, Lord, every day, many years. Please be with Augustine. Draw him to you, Lord. And of course, one day, this young man's converted, and he goes on to do a great good for the kingdom of God. You know what Augustine says later? And I think a brilliant line. He says, I was baptized in my mother's tears. See, I think that's a beautiful line. You imagine a mom, maybe you're here today, your son's off left field, and you're thinking, I did, he was raised in the church, we taught him the Bible, he knows the stuff, and now I, I have no more levers to pull, you're thinking. He's off, she's off, no more levers. You've got a really good lever. You've got the most potent thing any Christian has, the prayer. We pray. It's not to supplement what we've done. It's the primary work of what we do. We pray for those in our life who do not know King Jesus, knowing that in God's good time that he will do what is right and what is best for those who are his. May we be a prayerful church. You know, on, that line, uh, on this line of thinking too, I can't tell you how many sermons I've heard on Ephesians 6. That's the armor of God. And everybody says, well, there's lots of defensive things, you know, the belt and the shield. And there's only one offensive weapon, the sword of the spirit, which is the Bible. That's great. And I always want to say, I think there's another offensive weapon there, the prayer. <laughs> it says the sword of the spirit praying always. A prayer is the great weapon in every arsenal of the Christian God, we need your help. Your will be done. Align us with you. May your kingdom advance. May we be prayerful in that sense. A second thought here, just a little throwaway comment, but one I wonder about a lot. Will we ever know this side of heaven just how much prayer has helped us? I don't think so, but I, I'm scared to think so. How did Shaw make it three years and one month in that pulpit? I guess a lot of people have been praying for me. That's what I really think. I think there are are widows who have been praying for me and one day I'm going to see anything good that happened as a result of my ministry was really because people prayed for me. I think that's true. 
Brothers and sisters, now's the hour to pray. We pray to a loving Father with thankful hearts, dependent on him alone, not on human sophistry. We pray that God's word would always be honored in this church, that it would be seen for what it is, that God would open our eyes increasingly to the truth, that our faith, hope, and love, and all the other Christian fruits would abound, that we would grow deeper, that we wouldn't be bored, but actually that we would be matured into the likeness of Christ. We pray for gospel advancement, knowing that God in his good time will do what he wants with his church. That's what we pray for. Secondly, and shorter here, who does Paul pray with? Just a quick comment. Say, a lot of us, I don't think prayer has come naturally to any person in any era, um, and especially not now where we're, we're very distracted and we're very busy. That's just the truth. That's what it means to be alive in the 21st century. We're distracted and we're busy, and prayer does not come naturally. Sometimes Paul prays by himself. In the Ephesians, the letter to the Ephesians, Paul uses the first person singular. He says, I pray, I pray, I bow my knees now. He uses, this, he uses I. In this letter, you'll notice he uses we. And you think about the, the three names in chapter 1 and verse 1, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, and a short letter. You're like, what are Silvanus and Timothy actually doing? I mean, you know, did they interject a word here? Was Paul dictating and one of them running? But anyways, Paul says there's three of us here. And he says, we're praying. We are praying. In other words, he's praying with those who are similarly aligned. Now, where I work, there are many opportunities to pray with my colleagues. In fact, 100% of the people where I work are Christians. Uh, so we pray uh, every Monday morning, 9 o'clock. We pray together. Pray for one another pray for you. Say, all throughout the week, I'm able to pray. And what a strength that is. What a strength to pray with others. Maybe you're here, you say, wow, I, prayer is very unnaturally, uh, unnatural to me. Could there be one other Christian colleague, one friend with some regularity, say not every day, but with some regularity, you know, can we say even devote 10 minutes to praying for each other, uh, for each other's families, for our kids, things like that. Where I used to live, I knew a group of ladies they had children at the same time. Kids were now post-college when I met them. They met every week, prayed for each other's children. So what a strength you have, praying with the faithful. Might be a little awkward at first because you've never done it. Say, okay, what do we do now? Start praying for each other's families, short bits of time. And I think you'll see this really does strengthen my faith. It's a good thing to do. So Paul prays by himself and he prays with others. And we as a church can have that. Other Christians in your path. Maybe you can pray together. Lastly, when does Paul pray? A couple of lines here. Chapter 3 and verse 10. Uh, so, uh, all the joy that we feel for your sake before God. And verse 10, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Or similarly, chapter 5 and verse 17, that famous line, Paul would instruct them to pray without ceasing. When does Paul pray? Paul says you can pray anytime. I really like that line, night and day. As I talked to enough of you, after last service, talked to somebody, said, uh, you, you get up at 2 o'clock, and you know there's trouble. Your heart starts to pump. Because then what happens is you start to think about the past. And you think, oh man, all those regrets. All those missed opportunities. All those things that I did wrong. And it feels that the weight comes in and the guilt comes in. And then you start to think about the future and the way things are going and, and inflation and all these pressures and what your decisions those around you are making. It's just overwhelming. Past regrets, future worries. It all caves in. 
What chance do you have? Well, you pray, God, I know you're in control. I know that I'm your child. You rehearse truth. How much of mental health, uh, the, the mental health issues we're facing is about rehearsing the truth. Are we telling ourselves lies? This is a lot of trouble. Nobody's in control. I'm no good. I'm not going to make it. Or, wait a second, I'm God's child. I have a loving father. He knows the hairs on my head. I can entrust this to him. God, for all the past regrets, I give them to you. I know you can bind up wounds. I know you can heal things. I know you're powerful enough even to use my great folly for your good. That's the kind of truth we rehearse. God, for the future, nobody knows that. God, help me to rest in you. Help me in this time and in this climate not to protect myself and play defense. Help me to play offense with faith, hope, and love. Those kinds of things. Rehearse the truth in the middle of the night. When can you pray? Night and day. Anytime. And pray without ceasing. You know, you read 5 and 17 and night and day, and I think what happens is we read this, pray without ceasing, and we feel this is an overly taxing command. God's telling me that I need to pray all the, How am I going to pray all the time? I've got real responsibilities in the world. You know, you've got to pray all the time. Say, that's not what this is. Pray without ceasing is not to be viewed as an impossible command that is one we can't fulfill. Can you see... It's a wonderful invitation. This is an invitation from a loving father who says there are no boundaries when you've accepted Christ and come to me on my terms that I'm attentive to you. In my own limitations, I have a seven-year-old son and a four-year-old son, and I get home and I love it, but it's dad, 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 do the dad. What I got going on is not a part of the equation. Sometimes, guys, I, I just... I can't be available. I can't be available right now. I, I'd love to, to be able to do that. I can't right now because I got... That's not God. He says, you come to me. I'm available. I'm listening. So you're going into a difficult situation this week. God, I need your help. Help me to be a blessing. God, help me to get through this presentation. Help me to get through this tough appointment. Lord, strengthen me as I deal with these small children, whatever it might be. God says, you pray anytime. Pray without ceasing. There are no limitations, no boundaries. There's never a time where he's unavailable or double-booked. A loving father, we pray night and day without ceasing, casting our cares on him. So, friends, we have what Paul prays for, that he prays with others he prays whenever he has things on his mind that he can cast upon God because that's the kind of relationship that he knows he has in Jesus. So where does that leave us? A few final practical steps. You know, every, we've instituted every Wednesday night, I call it the central prayer meeting. It could really be a, a midweek prayer service where a number of us, we get together and we pray for the needs in our church. We ask for God's direction, pray for one another and sing a few hymns. And you know, it occurred to me that if every regular member and regular attender of our church, if we could come, if you, if you said, you know, I'll, I'll do one hour a month, even though we meet every week, you said, I'll come one hour a month to that prayer meeting, we'd have a couple hundred people in that prayer meeting. Say, so will you think about that? Say, so prayer not just saying, God bless the direction we're going, really to ask for God's help, to see what you can do to serve the church, the people you can bless in the church, weekly Prayer service, Wednesday night, 7 to 8. I know it's a commitment. It's another night out. I say, but what do you think? Prayer in the life of the church. 
women's prayer meeting. They meet Friday mornings, 9.30 to 10.30. Kind of what I'm talking about, well, prayer doesn't come naturally. Well, it might be a little bit awkward. Yeah, it might be, but they're your sisters in Christ and you can go and you can pray for the burdens and for the things in your life. We have a deacon of care, Vance Williams, and a prayer team now. We're always available. I try to stand down here or down there after the service. I'd love to pray with you if you're facing something challenging or the prayer team. Maybe we'd love to pray with you. can submit a prayer request. You know that uh, John Petticord said you, you got a big something coming up with your physical condition. You said, I'd love the staff to pray. Again, every Monday morning we pray. At our elder meetings, to the credit of, of Steve Trenta, before him, Denny Abuel, they say, what are your elder meetings like? Is it a lot of business? And I say, I got to tell you, it's two-thirds prayer meeting. We pray for one another. We pray for specific needs in the church, and then we go through the member roster, and we pray for each family. Last Tuesday night, if you had a last name that started with T through Z, we prayed for you. What did we pray? We prayed a lot like this. Lord, would you strengthen them? Would you build them up? Would you give them the confidence? Would you reassure them of the truth that Jesus is the most important thing? Lord, protect their marriage. Protect their children. May they grow in the Lord Jesus. That's what we do because that is the primary work of the spiritual office of shepherd, pastor, and the principal privilege of every member who is an office holder of this church. That's what we do. How about the quarterly pray, pray a day? You're looking at that. You know, when we announced that, you're like, 8 to 12 on a Saturday. How am I going to do that? You say, you realize how countercultural that is? To slow down on a Saturday, you say, you know what? In my house, it's not because I've, again, to use that language, I've pulled all the right levers, and I've done great, and I've got it all together, and God, occasionally, I ask him for his help, but rather to say, God, I, every good gift comes from you, and I'm going to spend four hours, once a quarter, thanking you for how kind you've been to me, and for asking you for help, because I need you, and I'm not self-sufficient, and Jim Whiteman leads those who I've learned a ton from Jim and Cindy on prayer. Maybe something you could mark off. Closing illustration, I, many years ago, young young clergyman, and I go to a man whose church, tough soil, this place, well, center city of Oxford, you know, just a tough place to minister. And the church was really growing, and I asked him, I said, well, you know, pastor, how's, you know, your church is growing, this looks good, tell me about, you know, what, what strategies are you using? Tell me what, what, and I'll never forget, he did this with his hand, he said, gospel and prayer gospel and prayer, gospel and prayer, preach Jesus, pray, preach Jesus, pray. That's what we've got. Honor the Savior, humble the sinner, promote a lifestyle that honors him. Are we a prayerful church? Do we see prayer being something that's going to add on to whatever work we decide to do? Or is prayer our very work? Knowing that we're his church for a short time here in Avon, that there are lots of people in our area. So friends, if you would join me now in prayer and then with a posture of prayer going forward. Lord, we thank you for this church in Thessalonica that had become a model church, an example. Thank you for giving us this glimpse into Paul's prayer life for the church. That we would thank you for every good gift, every changed life in this church, every galvanized spirit that is uh, more firm in, in the gospel of Christ as a result of you and not what we've been able to do, but help us to be mindful of our dependency upon you. Lord, in a congregation like ours, our affluence can cloud our judgment. Help us to see that we're weak and needy sinners, that you sent Jesus down for us, that you opened our eyes, that somehow, way, you allowed us to see your word for what it is, not a word for men, but a word from you. 
May there be others, neighbors, colleagues, others in Avon, these surrounding communities that that don't know you would open their eyes, Lord. We pray and plead for that. Lord, we need your wisdom on the future of our church. Help us to see what to do. Help us to be prayerful. Help us to be dependent. So God, may you be lifted high. May the gospel of Jesus be proclaimed. Bind us together in faith, hope, and love for Christ's sake. Amen.